A few weeks ago, I had the privilege of doing one of the things that I think is just unbelievably meaningful. I was able to attend the finalization of an adoption. I was in the courtroom when the trajectory of a child's life was changed. It's a remarkable moment. I don't know if you've ever been in a courtroom for the finalization of an adoption, so let me just describe it to you. A group of friends and family gather inside this courtroom, and this courtroom's a serious place. It's a place where the destinies of people are determined. It's sober because it's a big moment for that family and the child who've walked, no doubt, a complicated road together. I mean, adoption is always glorious, but it's also always complicated. This moment is incredibly celebratory because it's the final step after a long journey. So often there are balloons and even signs in a courtroom. It's, it's an unusual scene. Then in walks the judge. She sits behind the bench, has her black robe on, and she's holding her gavel. I'd imagine that for judges, these are pretty good days. You may be listening to this sermon as a judge, and it's like, yeah, these are really good days. I could understand why. Judge asks a few formal questions to the parents and the lawyers, and then she reads a statement declaring the child to now be the son or daughter of these parents that are in front of her. And then what's remarkable is a new name is read. It's awesome. She takes the gavel, strikes the bench, and with her signature, the child is legally adopted. And then afterwards, the family and judge gather for pictures. Sometimes the child sits on the judge's lap, even holds the gavel. It's an amazing moment. There's something so redemptive about that scene, something so transformative about what we witness. A child's life is forever changed. And it's the actions of a judge that make it possible. Her authority and her judgment create a future for this child and this family. Authority and judgment. How do those words land on you? They're important words, authority and judgment. They're also complicated words, right? Judgment can be, well, judgy, right? Some of you have friends that don't come to church because their favorite verse is, judge not lest you be judged. They know a lot of judgy Christians. Okay, I get that. Or the word authority. Authority, authority can be abused. It can be devalued. It can be used in ways that aren't helpful. And at the same time, authority can also be used in ways that help people to flourish. I saw an illustration of this on both sides in the last couple of weeks. I was at Eagle Creek uh, Park uh, yesterday and uh, going out on a run with my wife and there was an ROTC group. They're all lined up, young like college students or maybe high school students, I'm not sure which, and they had a commanding officer who was putting packs on them and helping them understand what they were going to do. And it was remarkable. Every time he gave an instruction, they responded, sir, yes, sir. And as I just watched it, it was amazed. They were in order, they had a mission, they were flourishing. 
thought about getting my oil changed a few weeks earlier, stopped at one of those you know, quick change lube places, I won't tell you which one it was, because the manager thought he was a commanding officer by the way he treated his employees. And I was like, yo, we're not in battle here, it's just changing the oil, man, and he was like, it just felt weird, right? So sometimes some of the scariest people are the folks who think they have authority when they don't really have authority. And yet authority is a good thing. Imagine a world without judgment. Imagine a world without judges. Imagine a world without authority. It would be anarchy. The good use of authority and the making of just judgments are essential to human flourishing. God designed it to be that way. In Revelation 20, we see authority and judgment, but we see them as Jesus exercises authority and judgment. This text, Revelation 20, will be celebratory for many of us, but it also can serve as a warning to some. It all depends on how you answer this question. How do you think about Jesus's authority and judgment? How do you think about Jesus's authority and judgment. Today in Revelation 20, we're gonna talk about the thousand year reign of Christ, sometimes called the millennial kingdom. The, well, then we're gonna talk about the defeat of Satan and the great white throne judgment. We're getting close to the end of the book. And in chapter 20, we see a complicated and loaded passage that shows us authority and judgment. So let's look at those two words, how they play out in this text, and then I wanna draw some implications of them at the end. So first, authority. Verses one through six detail what is often called the millennial kingdom or the thousand years. The text highlights how the authority of Jesus is manifested and then shared with God's people. So Jesus has authority, and then he shares it with those who are his followers. Look at chapter 20 and verse one. I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain. Once again, we find an angel coming out of heaven. We've seen this over and over in Revelation. Chapter five, it was the angel who said, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seal? In chapter 10, we saw an angel wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, his face like a sun. In chapter 18, an angel came from heaven with great authority and declared, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. So something dramatic is about to happen. That's why we see an angel again coming from heaven. What does he possess? He has in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. So first, the bottomless pit. The bottomless pit we saw in chapter nine when a fallen angel, we think Satan, is given a key to that bottomless pit. He opens it and unleashes a plague of locusts. This pit is the prison of evil spirits. If you wanna read more on that, look at 2 Peter chapter two and verse four. The angel is holding this key and the key is an important symbol. Think with me for a moment. What does a key symbolize? Well, a key symbolizes authority. 
Remember Jesus described in chapter one and verse 18 as having the keys of death and Hades? In chapter three and verse seven, Jesus has the key of David. So keys indicate authority. Just ask a teenager what it's like when his parents hand him the keys for the first time and they say, here's the keys, son. Or just ask somebody who's a laid off worker what it felt like when they were told, hey, it's time to turn in your keys. Keys are meaningful. And this angel has a key to the bottomless pit, the prison of demons. But notice he also has something else. He has a key and he has a great chain. Because not only will he use this prison in a moment to hinder the devil's activity, but we also find this chain, which is a personalized element of a prison. And it indicates a coming restraint of the devil. We see this in verse two. Look at it. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan. Notice four descriptors. Like, okay, John, we get it. But John wants to make sure you really understand who he's talking about. The dragon, the ancient servant, who is the devil and Satan. And what did he do? And he bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. So we have here this restraint of Satan during this time period of a thousand years. But once again, we find a text that has a wide array of views as to exactly what's happening here. And it relates to these thousand years. There are some Christians who believe that the thousand years are merely symbolic. They don't think they're literal years, but rather that they're a symbol. They believe this time period was inaugurated at Jesus' death and it continues now. And that the devil is restricted in his activity. And they believe that the language regarding the binding of Satan is also symbolic. And this view is often called amillennialism because this view doesn't hold to a literal millennial. That's why amillennial, not a millennial. Other Christians see this thousand years as more literal when Christ actually reigns on the earth. And this view is called pre-millennialism. And there's yet another view called post-millennialism that believes in an improving society that gets better and better and better where Christ rules in the hearts of his people and in society before his second coming. So there's three views. They all have very different perspectives. And let me be clear, they're all Christians and somebody's wrong. <laughs> and someday we're gonna figure out who is right. But let me remind you that I'm preaching a sermon, not giving a lecture on Revelation. We don't have time to unpack all of the three views, and this is one of the most hotly debated sections of Scripture among gospel-loving Christians, and I am happy to tell you where I land, but not right now. <laughs> Instead, what I want to do is highlight what I think is underneath all three of these views, namely the authority of Jesus. We'll spend lots of time in heaven unpacking how wrong we got the book of Revelation at times. But what we do know and what we all agree upon is there's something important that's said here about who Jesus is and the kind of authority that he possesses. Look at verse four, we see this clearly. I saw thrones 
There it is. And seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Ah, there's the point. This is an important image. Because with the devil restrained, God's people exercise dominion on the earth. What we're finding is that things are beginning to return back to the way that it was meant to be in the Garden of Eden when God told Adam and Eve to exercise dominion. Notice the ones who are seated on the throne are described as faithful. There are those who have both been martyred and those who resisted the beast and his system. Look at verse four. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So it seems as though there are believers in Jesus who are given authority and they're given authority because of Jesus's authority. It tells us in verses four and five that these are resurrected while the rest remained in the grave and it's identified as the first resurrection. Look at verse five, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. And then look at verse six, because it really captures the essence of the theme of this section of scripture, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. They will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. What a glorious verse, just think of that. By virtue of his authority, Jesus has reclaimed the created world and those who know him and love him share in his righteous reign. Death can't touch Jesus, death can't touch them. I love what commentator James Hamilton says about this text related to being a follower of Jesus. He says, if you're a believer in Jesus, these verses describe your future. Satan is gone from the scene. Christ is reigning on earth. You will be raised from the dead to sin no more. No satanic deception, no satanic temptation. In the presence of Christ, you will do justice and serve as a priest to God. This is what you were made to do. You were created to enjoy God as king in God's land in free obedience to God's law, uncontaminated, undefiled, unsullied, no devil prowling around like a roaring lion, only freedom and joy and righteousness. What a day this will be. And it's only there because of Jesus. Nobody seated on any of these thrones or ruling in this way as a royal priesthood is going to say to one another, we are never going to say, look what we did. It's only because of Jesus. His people are priest kings. They're a royal priesthood. But here's the thing, their authority and dominion is entirely dependent upon Jesus both who he is and what he's done. They are, even in this moment, in Christ. They possess authority because of his authority. They're in Jesus. So if you're a Christian, realize you are forgiven because of what Christ has done. You're a new creature because you're in Jesus. You're reconciled to God because you're in him. You were 
elect before the foundation of the earth in him. You are preserved and you're gonna be faithful all the way to the end because you're in him. We come to faith in Christ and for all of eternity, we will remain in Christ. There is never a moment in your life, Christian, when you are uncoupled from the person and work of Jesus. In fact, the more you understand about your union with him, the more you understand it's central to who you are and central for your future. The authority of Jesus now creates flourishing for those who know him. So that's the first word, authority. Now secondly, the word judgment. We see in verses seven through 15 some heavy statements. This is the final act of judgment before all things are made new. It's the culmination of God's redemptive plan if you're coming to College Park today for the very first day, please come back because next week's gonna be about heaven. Next two weeks are gonna be about heaven. Verse seven tells us that at the end of the thousand years, Satan is released. He begins once again his campaign of deception despite not having at his disposal the beast or the false prophet. Remember, they've already, in chapter 19, been thrown into the lake of fire. At the end of this thousand years, Satan leads another rebellion. In verse eight, it's described as a rebellion that involves the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. Both of these terms are designed to show a massive group of people. It's a symbolic way of indicating a significant host. In fact, the text even says that. Their number, this is verse eight, is like the sand of the sea. They march in a, an attack formation on the broad plain of the earth, verse nine. They surround the camp of the saints and the beloved city. The idea is that these forces of darkness are, are marching in revolt. The, Devil has persuaded them to revolt against King Jesus and they encircle the beloved city and the camp of God's people. And it would appear as though God's people are in trouble. For those of you who are Lord of the Rings fans, you could think of this like the Battle of the Black Gate or the Battle of Helm's Deep, this massive horde of invaders. And yet God delivers his people without even a battle. <laughs> so good to know, isn't it? When things look bleak, all God has to do is do one thing and it's over. Text says this, but fire came down from heaven <clears throat> and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever. There's no battle, there's no battle, there's no, no waging of a warfare. It's a victory similar to what we see in the Old Testament with Elijah, with the fire coming down at Mount Carmel, or what the prophet Ezekiel describes in Ezekiel 
38, he says this, with pestilence and bloodshed, I will enter into judgment. I will reign upon him and his hordes and the many peoples who are with him, torrential rains and hailstones, fire and sulfur. So I will show my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the eyes of many nations and they will know that I am the Lord. That's Ezekiel 38, 21 through 23. There's all kinds of connections between Daniel and Ezekiel and the book of Revelation. The point is, is that there is a decisive judgment that's brought about by the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In fact, so decisive that the devil himself is judged. Again, verse 10, the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where he will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Just think of this. Now, finally, 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 the activity and the deception of Satan are over. And all of God's people who have been tempted all their lives, all of God's people who've had to push back against the deception of the enemy, all of God's people who have seen the destruction that the devil causes, all of God's people hear this verse and say what? Amen and amen. His rebellion against the righteousness of God is over. All that's left for the devil is eternal judgment. Then we have the great white throne. Verses 11 to 15 extend the focus of judgment, not just to the devil and the false prophet and the beast, now to all of humanity. Verse 11, I saw a great white throne. Grant Osborne in his commentary on Revelation suggests that this is a unique description in Revelation that no other throne is described this way. The throne is immense, the throne is majestic, the throne is pure, the throne is holy. Notice that from his presence, the one seated on it, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. The idea is that the created order is being reconstituted. There's a massive reformation taking place of everything. Earth and sky, the whole world is coming apart in a good way. It's being purified. Verse 12 shows us the purpose. And I saw the dead, great and small, meaning everyone. People with authority, people who didn't have authority. People who were amazingly popular, people who were unpopular. People who were famous, people who were not famous. The great and small. I saw the dead standing before the throne. And the text says, and books were opened. Books were opened. What books? These books are important. In Daniel chapter seven, remember Revelation has connections to Ezekiel and Daniel. In Daniel seven, there's a connection between divine judgment and the books. The books aren't named, but there's a clear indication of what they are. First, another book was opened, which is the book of life. So there's 
two kinds of books. There's the book of life, and there's something else called just the books. And the dead were judged by what is written in the books according to what they had done. Expands it even further. Verse 13, the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one, according to what they had done. So what's clear is there's two kinds of books, if you will. There's the book of life, and there's the books that are a record of what they have done. So start with the book of life. The book of life is a record of the people, like in Revelation 21 and verse 27, who belong to the Lamb, the Lamb's book of life. This is the listing, a record of those who have turned from their sins and put their trust in the name of Jesus. Many commentators suggest that the book of life is similar to a book registry for a city identifying who the citizens were, a verification of the fact that they belonged there. So that's what the book of life is, a listing of the names of people who are God's people, who have put their trust and faith in Jesus. What about these other books? The first books, not the book of life, but the first books appear to be a divine record of the works of mankind. Now, I don't exactly know what this is going to be like, but as I've thought about this, done some research, let me suggest to you what it might be like. I don't wanna be overly dramatic, but imagine if the books are a record of everything that every human being has ever done. Think of that. Think of a listing of all of the things in your life that you've done that are good, and then, this is horrifying, think of all of the things that you've done that are wrong and not one of them is missing. I mean, we're talking like impure motives. We're talking things that you said about people that they don't know about. We're talking about things that you've thought about. We're talking about things that like you've done and nobody but you and the Lord knows about those things. Imagine a, a, a record like that and imagine that record in light of this great white throne, this majesty and holy God who's seated there. And imagine, just, just kind of go there with me for a moment, the contrast between God's holiness and the record of every single human being. Like all of it, all of it, every single thing. The, the point of the books is that if that was just the story, the contrast between God's glory and the sinfulness of human beings would only lead to one conclusion. These people, in light of what they've done, deserve punishment. The evidence would be overwhelming. So imagine, just imagine with me for a moment, that there's these books with the record of all the things that you've done, and imagine now it's exposed, and, and you're seen for who you really are, who God knows you are and who you know you are, and then after that record is made clear, then the book of life is checked, 
and we look for the name of the person, Mark Vrogup, and all of this is forgiven because my name is in the book of life. So, imagine the relief of two things being true at the same time. And I don't wanna push false guilt on you as though your sins aren't forgiven, they are. But I run into Christians sometimes that act as though God doesn't know what we've done. And imagine if two things are true at the exact same time. All of this is true. I'm awful. And yet what also is true is my savior is gracious and kind, and he has forgiven me of my record of debt. Imagine if that's the scene that plays out. Some Christians, I think, might live in a mindset that once they receive Jesus, there's no longer any record. Maybe that's true. This text would seem to indicate that the record still exists, but the difference is this record is not the only story. There's two stories. This one says guilty, this one says forgiven. And that's why when you look at the text, when it says death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire, this is the second death, the lake of fire, and then verse 15, there's a warning. Hear the warning. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The issue isn't whether or not you're worse than others on the record of the books. The record of the books is we're all in trouble. The difference between being in the lake of fire or being in the presence of Jesus is whether your name is in the book of life. So the revelation of Jesus Christ is about his authority, about his judgment over sin, his judgment of the devil. And what this text does, I think in really clear and stark terms, is it identifies a path, a fork in the road that every person has to ask themselves the question, how do I think about Jesus's authority and his judgment? How do I think about the fact that Jesus knows? He knows you. And if you're a Christian and put your faith and trust in him, he loves you, he's forgiven you, but he also knows you. You are fully known and you are fully forgiven. If you understand God's grace, you understand two truths that changed your life. Number one, you understand that you're a wretched, awful sinner. Don't run or hide from that. But it also means that you know a savior who cleansed you of your sins. It means that God has taken Jesus' death and he's applied it to your sin debt. Now, what do we do with this? There's so many things we could say or think about this, but let me just draw two implications, one about you and one about Jesus. First of all, if you're not yet a Christian, oh my, this text is a caution that I would beg you to consider. I don't know how you think about how the world works or how you even think about the book of Revelation, but in the biblical account of the end of days, there's a reckoning for the things that we've done that are wrong. And if you're not yet a Christian, I would think this would make sense to you. I mean, surely we're not gonna get away with it, right? That just doesn't make sense. The things that we've done, like somehow, somewhere, there's gonna be an accounting. The things done wrong for you, they're gonna be accounted for. Like, 
It's not as though we just do things and like nothing ever happens. The message of the Bible is that God holds us accountable for our sinfulness. Our rebellion is an affront to his holiness and the way that that's been taken care of is the death and resurrection of Jesus and God applies his atonement to your account. And if you're not yet a Christian, you may say, well, I don't believe that. And my response would be, okay, what if it's true? Are you willing to take that risk? What if God really does know everything that you've ever done and what if he really is holy? And what if that issue of God's holiness and your unholiness puts you in eternal jeopardy right now? Are you willing to take that risk that the Bible is wrong and you are right? I hope this text pushes you to put your faith in Jesus today for the forgiveness of your sins. For those of you who are Christians, listen to this exhortation from Peter in light of this kind of text. Peter says this, amazing celebration. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Yes, 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 why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Peter says, you once were not a people, now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. All of that is true, that's like the book of life stuff. Amen, amen. And then Peter says this, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, meaning you're not made for this world like it is. I urge you to abstain, listen carefully, from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Sometimes Christians can take God's grace and they can so apply it in their lives that they justify their ungodliness like their ungodliness doesn't really matter anymore because I can just ask Jesus' forgiveness and cleanse me of my sin. And the Bible says, if that's how you deal with God's grace, you don't understand God's grace. If you're a Christian, this text is a reminder. Our sins are real. They're not theoretical. Like history on a website, you could chart it, see what you've done, what you've thought about, what you've looked at, what you've said, the things that you've done, like all of that stuff is real. The hope for a Christian is not that you're perfect. The hope for a Christian is all of that is true, but I got a savior who's rescued me from me. And when you understand that, that means that you not only love Jesus, listen, it means you also hate sin. There are some today you're messing around with stuff that you need to cut off now. Peter says, these things are waging war against your soul. Live like a person whose name is written in the book of life. Don't live like a person who's only living in light of one set of books. So as you celebrate who you are in Jesus, it's a call here to be reminded that you're in exile and to put to death the passions of the flesh. 
The final thing here, we, we see again, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's, it's so glorious, isn't it? Here he is, prophet, priest, and king. He's a prophet, he tells us the truth. He's priest, he makes atonement for us. He's king, he exercises authority and he rules with power. And Revelation 20 is a reminder that everything connected to God's plan of salvation is only operational because of him. He's going to defeat the, de- the devil, He's made it possible for your name to be written in the Lamb's book of life. And so the question at the end of this chapter is, do you love him? Do you marvel at him? Do you think about him? Here's what Revelation 5 says about him. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. That's who you are, Christian, because of what Jesus has done for you. This is the revelation of the King of kings and Lord of lords. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ who possesses all authority and exercises pure judgment to make everything wrong right again. And to this, God's people say, even so, come, come, Lord Jesus. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Mm. Lord Jesus, apply, we pray, your word and your grace to our lives that we might receive the instruction and the caution related to your authority and judgment Oh, Lord, let us love your grace and let us lean in to wage warfare on the passions of the flesh. We ask you to help us do that right now. That we might draw a line even today and decide that certain things need to change immediately because of how much we love you and all that you've done for us. So come right now, Lord, and help us to think about what those things might be. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, in King Jesus' name, all of God's people said together, amen.